As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and my good friend Danny of Deljabar. Danny, how are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Um, before we get started on today's episode, I just want to do a very quick reminder. And that reminder is, um, I'm pretty sure you know where this is going. Please <laughs> fill out the survey that's in the show notes. The Survey Monkey survey, it will take you two minutes and it will... Give you a chance to win $500 in Amazon cash. I'm legally obligated to tell you that it's only Amazon, Amazon money. But make sure that you fill out the survey. Uh, again, it is a tremendous help if you guys take you know two minutes to fill this out. So please do that. Um, and we can uh, eventually stop, stop bothering annoying you about, about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, today we have a guest on. We, uh, we have Sheldon Richmond, who is the executive director of the Libertarian Institute. And in my opinion... If you just had to read one book on Israel-Palestine, Sheldon's book, Coming to Palestine, I have it in my hand right now, um, it is one of the books that you should read, or if not, the first book you should read, because it's a pretty easy read. It's about 128 pages or so. It's a collection of 40 essays, and honestly, um, it's it's a great read. I, I would really recommend getting it um, if you just had to read one book on Israel-Palestine. Sheldon, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much, and thank you for the comments about the book. Oh yeah, well I think it's terrific, and and this is a this is a collection of essays for over what thirty thirty years or so. About thirty years, yes, yes. So it's there's such, there's such range. So it goes from like the creation of Israel to the Israeli lobby to just so many different topics, and it really just gives you kind of the ease the the need to know information. And the reason why I like books like this, which are like collections of essays and and uh, books that kind of accumulate um, a, a lot of different essays because they're easy reads. Um, you can get, you can kind of mail them out in a couple of days. And I just, I just really enjoyed this. So I think it's a great work and um, I need to start, I need to read your, some of your other books as well. But um, yeah, I guess to get things started and, and, you know, last week we were covering the current situation in Israel um, the protest situation. Um, so we really wanted to get your insight insight on it. Maybe talk about a little bit of current events. Maybe go into the history of Israel, Palestine, and the Zionist movement. I guess to start this off, why don't you let our listeners know just a little bit more about your background and how you started uh, covering the Israeli-Palestine conflict? Well, I grew up uh, being taught and believing that um, that Israel, there was nothing wrong with Israel, that, that Israel was a, an important uh, modern development, founded in 1948. That it was uh, it was a, it was a haven for uh, 
for Jews under who are always under threat around the world. You know, we're talking about now. I'm learning this in the '50s, so it's obviously post World War II, uh, and that there was, a, you know, there was a, it was a thoroughly moderate uh, moral um, project, and uh, there was no, the only people who could say anything bad about it were people who didn't like Jews because they were Jews, not for any other reason, just because Jews as Jews. In other words, they're anti-Semites, and which also included Arabs, as we were taught. Uh, we would hear phrases like, uh, you know, drive us into the sea. And uh, Nasser, who was uh, then the head of uh, uh, president of Egypt, uh, was, um, you know, uh, the new Hitler. One in a long series of new Hitlers that seems to come up every 10 years. Uh, and so uh, it took me quite a while. I mean, I was, I was already uh, an adult when I started uh, uh, hearing something contrary to that and began to investigate for myself, read things. And, uh, and I, I was already a libertarian at that point. And so I was applying my own views of justice and individual rights. And I, uh, came to the conclusion in, the, in the beginning of the very late seventies and in, in early eighties that, um, I had been not told the truth, not that people were deliberately lying to me. There are people who believed it too. They just, hadn't investigated. They weren't scholars. They were, you know, just regular people, parents and relatives and friends and, you know, rabbis. Uh, whether they looked into it themselves, you know, I seriously doubt. They just took that on faith the way they take all of their religion on faith. And I got to a stage where I could do I could do that no longer. So I completely turned around on it and uh, started to write for the uh, here and there. And then I ended up with a column in the Washington Report of Middle East Affairs. Uh, and then I wrote uh, some things for the Cato Institute, went to work for the Cato Institute, uh, still writing and reviewing books and uh, having to do with Israel in the Middle East. And then uh, later on, once the Libertarian Institute started up uh, in, the, you know, in this century, uh, I continued to write an occasional columns on that on the subject. And uh, one day, Scott Horton said, you know, you ought to put all that stuff in a book. So that's what we did. Now, now, now something I've heard in other interviews, and I think I've, I've uh, you know, read articles where there is some family history where I think it was maybe your paternal grandfather uh, was a religious Jew, and he actually had kind of a, a, a contrarian view, I guess, in his community. Yes, certainly in the family. I don't know what his own peers thought. He was, you know, pretty elderly man, Orthodox, not not the ultra Orthodox. You know, he didn't wear the black long coat and the hat and the, have the uh, the kind of the hair on the side locks, you know, hair and, uh, and stuff like that. I'm not sure exactly, but there's a lots of strands of Orthodox Judaism. And, uh, but um, one day after the '67 war, and I wrote about this in the book. I expanded it in the book. I'd originally written it in an article in the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. Uh, uh, we would go see him on Saturday afternoons with my parents. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure this was after the 67 war. And my mother was probably saying, you know, that was a miracle. Look how great, you know, they did. Thank goodness and all this. And he said, and I remember this like the day it happened, uh, the Jews are the cause of all the trouble over there. 
and they couldn't believe it. Apparently, they never heard him say anything like that before. I never heard him say anything like that before, but I was just still, no, I was a teenager. In, in 67, I was, you know, 17. Uh, although, no excuse. I, sh- I could have been thinking about this stuff at 17. That's old enough, but I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I was too busy, you know, trying to cope with high school and getting to college and stuff like that. Uh, and they just said, how can you say that? It's one little sliver of land uh, surrounded by these hostile Arabs. You want to go over there and see what it's like, because they had been there once at least, maybe twice. And he said, I wouldn't set foot in that place. Now, he was echoing the old school Orthodox who opposed Zionism from the very start. Now, Zionism was a secular movement. Uh, so Herzl, Theodor Herzl in, in Austria and uh, people around him, they were not religious Jews. I mean, Herzl you know, had a Christmas tree in his house and didn't circumcise his son. Uh, it was not the... Uh, it was not an issue, uh, and it was a, and Ben Gurion, uh, first the first prime minister, you know, was a left wing atheist secularist. Uh, in fact, they, if anything, they didn't like the old Eastern uh, 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 Jews. They thought they were backward, dirty, even had spoke about them in very insulting ways. You can, you know, and we, this is discussed in lots of different books. They weren't very fond of those people. Um, and and so the the Orthodox believe that uh, it's it's a it's an affront to God to for humans to decide when to go back or you know they would say go back to uh, to Israel because that that had to be you know that's God's decision the Messiah's decision the ones who believe in that on the other side this, the Reformed Jews also opposed. On the grounds, not on the same grounds as the Orthodox, not at all. They weren't. They weren't waiting for the Messiah. They said that's ancient stuff. That's old. We are now the American. You know, the American reformers saying we're Americans. American is our America is our country. Judaism is just our religion, and worldwide, Judaism is merely a religious community. It is not a nation. And in their, and in their declaration uh, in I think 1885, this, it's called the Cincinnati Declaration. The reform movement in the United States, you know, made this declaration. We are no longer a diaspora. We're not wandering. We don't seek to reconstruct, you know, the laws of Aaron back in ancient times. That was something past and over with. It's a new world. And um, and so you had, you know, you had the reform and the Orthodox denouncing, really in, in harsh terms, denouncing uh, Zionism, the, the, this desire to set up a state in, the, in Palestine. Uh, in the harshest terms, and throughout Palestine, actually, they wanted all Palestine. So, uh, my grandfather is in that, yeah, that Orthodox uh, school, and uh, I, I unfortunately never had a conversation with him about it. I heard him say this stuff, but I, I, since I wasn't really thinking about it, I didn't sit him down and say, tell me more. I wish I had. I could have one more conversation with him. It might be about that. So, I guess... Where or I guess my first question, and here's something that I've I've always been confused about, is when did the religious Jews start supporting, or how did the religious Jews start supporting the state of Israel? Well, you know, I'm sure it wasn't one fell swoop, but I'm sure post World War II and the fact that it had become a fait accompli had a lot to do with it. So there was this idea that. 
yeah, these uh, displaced people in Europe needed somewhere to go. And plus things were moving that way. You know, the UN General Assembly had recommended a partition, which of course it had no authority to do. It was only a recommendation. It was not a partition. It was a recommendation of a partition. People don't seem to realize that. So I think a lot of American, including even reform, the reform weakened. I mean, they went from first like anti-Zionist to non-Zionist. And now a lot of reform are enthusiasts for Israel. Now, maybe not for Netanyahu, but for Israel in general. So I think I think that's that's the what accounts for it. The fact that I mean the Nazis, which are you know, horrible thing and terrible, obviously could not be ignored, and the fact that things were headed that way. Uh, on the reform side, there was the American Council for Judaism, which was set up by people and run by uh, set up by Reform Jews who opposed Zionism in the '40s, late '40s, and uh, run by Rabbi Elmer Berger, who's a prolific author, has written quite a bit. And uh, and they stuck to it. In fact, they still exist and are still anti-Zionist. They still publish a quarterly newsletter, published, uh, edited by a guy uh, by the name of Alan Brownfield. But I think a lot of reform has caved in. I don't really keep uh, keep track of uh, you know the denominations here in the United States. But you know, you just don't hear much principled anti-Zionism. Uh, you haven't heard over the years. Things are now changing because you're getting Peter Beinart and other people uh, really disgusted with how the Palestinians have been treated and are giving up Zionism. That that's beginning to happen. So there's kind of going back to an earlier opposition to the idea of a Jewish state reform. You know, look, the reform opposed Israel for two reasons. Number one, people already lived there. People had lived there a long time people we call the Palestinians, who may well be the descendants of ancient Israelites, you know, who mixed with other people because lots of, that was a crossroads, Palestine. Lots of people came through there. Uh, they may have converted uh, over the years to uh, Islam once uh, once that that rose and came into the area. Uh, and and Ben-Gurion once thought that they were descendants. In fact, he, he wrote a book, he co-wrote a book in 1918, published in 1918, but I don't believe ever in English, Saying that the the Arabs who are here in here in Palestine are are relatives. They're all Semitic peoples, as as the uh, the nomenclature goes. Well, yeah, but it's even I think it's even further than that. I mean, I, I think they think that the that they are descendants, as Ben Gurion claimed he was, of mm-hmm. of ancient uh, Israelites. They weren't just in that grouping of Semitic person. Semitic is really a language group. Right? Not, Correct. It's not, it's not racial, biological, and, and there's no Jewish race anyway, despite what some people think in Israel. Uh, oh, we'll get to that part later. <laughs> okay. Uh, any, anyway, we're seeing cracks now, but those are relatively recent cracks. Up until very recently, yeah, uh, a lot of reform, I think, has come. No, there are holdouts among the reform who are still anti-Zionist. Uh, you can hear them. There's a group called the Naturi Karta, and they, they, they're also based in Israel, but they have a, a basis in New York City. And I, and I see uh, one of the, uh, sometimes I see them on YouTube, and they're they're hardcore. They say this this is this land has to go back to the people we've taken it from. They're very hardcore. The Reform also objected that Judaism, like I said, Judaism, the Jewish people is not are not a nation. There are many Jewish peoples. They're not a nation. And there should not be a Jewish state. First of all, they said that would jeopardize Jews in other countries because it opens them up to the dual loyalty uh, charge. 
uh, and and also uh, the idea that there's a they didn't like the idea of a Jewish state. They were sort of uh, committed to uh, liberal democracy, more or less. And uh, this idea of a Jewish state would have to be prejudiced against non-Jews. So the reform, they nailed it. They had the, they had the right position. Is is that um, part of what we see in today's contemporary pushback uh, between uh, you know the the secular uh, uh, and religious uh, uh, Jewish people in Israel? Is, is elements of that original reform argumentation still in effect today? Or is there something like new about why um, why they might be pushing back against it? Well, I think that's more domestic religious. Uh, uh, those are domestic religious issues rather than how to, uh, about the Palestinians and whether there ought to be a, a Jewish state. I think the dispute there is between two forms of Zionism, secular Jewish Zionism and uh, and very religious uh, Zionism. So you have staunch nationalists who are not religious, right? They, mm-hmm. They're in the coalition with Netanyahu. But then there's also uh, very religious uh, staunch nationalists. So it's it's two forms of nationalism. I don't have a, a dog in that race, as far as I'm concerned. Plague mm-hmm. uh, on both their houses. Uh, the only question is, you know. Uh, you know, with the, their views of you know, God, whether God exists. Or... Right. So, uh, yeah, the debate isn't about whether there should be a Jewish state or not. It's just be, they don't, look, the, the secularists just don't like that the, the Orthodox rabbis who were in charge of uh, many things like marriage and divorce and, and stuff like that, family matters. Uh, I mean, I think they're talking about not recognizing Jews who have not been converted, you know, outside the country, who have been not not been converted, or sure, convert convert Jews who have not been converted by Orthodox rabbis. Any any lesser rabbi, according to them, is not is not real enough, and that so that person can't just move to Israel and become a citizen right away. Like, that's like interesting. The, like Jews can. So that fight's going on. But who is a Jew has always been a fight in Israel because there are state benefits accorded to people regarded as Jewish. So it matters who was a Jew, right? It doesn't matter in the United States who was a Jew because we don't we don't dispense favors on that basis. You know, government shouldn't dispense favors, but but they but they do yeah, here and they do there. So it, it really does matter who can become an instant citizen. It matters to a lot of people over there, most people over there. So there's there's it's an ongoing debate and it flares up now and then, but it's it's never been resolved. That's what happens when you have a Jewish state. So what I think is confusing for, because when you look at contemporary Israel right now, it certainly seems like the most hardcore nationalist right now, or no, here's a phrase. Let me rephrase this. So here's a phrase I keep on hearing. And, and, um, you know, in every single newspaper, if I read Haaretz, if I read New York times, any, pretty much any paper that's covering it, it's Israel's most right-wing government of all time, um, you know, because of the coalition with the ultra-Orthodox and, and, and the super-nationalist settler-type parties. Now, I kind of think back and, and just remember, like, the Labor Party, where, you know, the, the, the founders, the left-wing, you know, leaning socialist, egalitarian Jews that started the Israel, they're the ones who committed the biggest crime out of anyone. I mean, in terms of just ethnically cleansing the, you know, Palestine to, to, uh, you know, the, the, you know, they, they, they 
facilitated the creation of the state displacing millions of people. So, I'm, so I have a hard time kind of weighing what that, you know, weighing that out, like understanding that and putting that into in, into perspective. I, but what what's your thought on that? Yeah, I don't think left and right in Israel has anything to do with the Palestinians. It has to do with other issues, like you know how much, uh, how socialistic should the economy be, or how, how, what direction, you know, how much should they move toward the toward the free market, uh, or, uh, yeah, how um, how liberal you should be regarding, uh, con- like I said, converts who uh, weren't converted by uh, Orthodox rabbis. It's I don't think there's much argument over how to treat the Palestinians. That's, the left isn't like, let's be nice to the Palestinians and the right, let's, you know, let's kick them out or let's make them so uncomfortable they'll feel like they have to leave. Uh, that, that's not an issue. There's broad agreement on that. And, and uh, what you said is extremely perceptive. Uh, the Likud doesn't uh, get elected uh, for the first time until, what, 1979 with Menachem Begin, who was a terrorist. I mean, he ran one of those uh, uh, militias and terrorist groups, the Yergun, that conducted massacres in 47 and 48, Uh, before the Declaration of Independence was made, before the Arab, uh, surrounding Arab nations uh, uh, tried to stop them from running uh, the Palestinians out out of Palestine. Uh, Up until then, it was labor. And it was labor that conducted the war in 67. It was labor that didn't sit down and seriously talk about the, you know, what we're gonna do with the Palestinians, about what are we gonna do? Uh, they had the, in fact, look, they had the uh, Palestinians who managed not to get driven out of uh, of um, Israel, you know, what, what became the state of Israel in 48, 49. Um, they had the, the, those Arabs, those Palestinians under military rule until 1966, okay, from 1948 to 1966. They were under military rule. I'm not talking about occupied territories. This is pre-occupied territories. Before this, before '67, uh, so labor, yeah, labor does not deserve. It's one of those things where you know people people look back at labor nostalgic nostalgically because they're comparing it to the people they don't like today. I mean that happens all the time in politics and other, and other things, right? Somebody who mm-hmm. you who you thought was terrible ten years ago, you know, now now uh, hey, that person not so bad compared to this guy. George Bush, people start thinking nicely about because of Trump. This kind of thing happens all the time. Well, and it's happening today. So if we just got not, if a lot of people think if we just got rid of Netanyahu, all would be well. Well, no, all wouldn't be well. (laughs) He's just a lightning rod, and it's it's convenient. Don't blame Israel. Blame Netanyahu. That's what people are doing. Yeah, he certainly seems to be a scapegoat. And you know, what's interesting is because I, I do feel that the. I guess especially like left-wing American Jews are just getting tired of them. And you can kind of see it. You know, we know. Um, so in 2021, when there was that horrible operation in Gaza, right after they bombed the, eight, um, the, uh, the AP building, um, if everyone can remember that, which is, you know, not ancient history. It just happened where they said, the Israeli... Blinken was interviewed and he basically said, he basically said, um, well, Israel didn't tell me to say anything about terrorists being in that building. I have no idea that there, that Hamas is in there. So he was playing, he was pleading ignorance 
And basically, what you know, what I read that as is Blinken saying, "Hey guys, you're on your own on this one. You know, we're not gonna jump. Um, you know, we're not gonna jump and, and defend you on this one. I mean, we will defend you on this when push comes to shove, but not with the same type of enthusiasm, of course, as is probably a Republican uh, president would." So I kind of see like there's a schism and I think it like in, in some regard, I feel like it's kind of playing out in, in, in like the Israeli protests right now where you have the secular kind of left wing tech bubble uh, Jews of Israel. And then you have the, you know, I guess the guys that maybe that you don't want to show publicly, because if you can remember right before that, um, that that um, and this was like something that was all over the news. Um, right there was the um, the fire in the uh, Temple Mount, and there was a tree. There was a, there was a tree that was on fire, and then in there was an image. There was a video of a bunch of Israelis dancing in front of it, and then um, you know saying something. I forget what it was, but it was equivalent as something like as as like fuck the Arabs or death, like something you know outlandishly racist. And that was that social media kind of shot that at everyone. And I think that's one of the reasons why the the, pal, the pro-Palestinian protests were so galvanized at that time period. Well, uh, just for like general news perspective, I was watching Fox News that day and Geraldo uh, uh, Rivera, who is, you know, he's a, I guess a left wing Zionist. He plays the role on Fox News as kind of like the token liberal. And he was getting into an argument with Sean Hannity and he gets so frustrated in this argument because he's defending and he's, you know, kind of saying what Israel did was wrong. And, 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 and Sean Hannity, of course, was, was uh, defending it as self-defense. And he starts getting so upset and frustrated. He starts throwing pieces of paper at Sean Hannity. He's like, screw you, Hannity. Stop it, Hannity. And it was, it was to me that represented it had it, it showed something it showed something where i feel like american liberals um especially american liberal zionists are getting embarrassed of the ultra right wing you know the ones that openly it, for for example like the kahani type ones the ones who have some type of background with kahani uh like ben gaver who allegedly i guess was associate with them um what are your thoughts on that well, I, th- I think uh, so-called liberal Zionists in the United States are, and lots of Democrats are losing patience. First of all, but, but again, it gets back to what I said. Uh, it, it, they don't like Netanyahu. And, and so it's easy for them to pour it on Netanyahu, implying that if, if a labor government was in there, things, things would be different. Although, although I don't see how they would be different. They don't like Netanyahu. Netanyahu try, uh, un- tried to undercut uh, Obama when he went into the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, which, by the way, Biden has not re-entered. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're turning up the screws on Iran. So Biden's not even carrying on the tradition of, uh, of, of, of his boss, Obama. Uh, he, he's, uh, so he has, it doesn't seem like he's going over it. Uh, to the to the more you know liberal Zionist side, uh, uh, but they are losing their patience. Uh, uh, Beinart has given given up the idea of a Jewish state altogether, and you know he's sort of mildly left, not hardcore leftist or anything. But, 
but but he's he's tried he tried to be a liberal Zionist for a long time. Now he's just dumped Zionism because he thinks Jewish Jewish state is is something that ought to be that ought to be exist or you know, be striven for. Um, so I think that's I think that's what's going on. There's division in the Democratic Party. Trump tried to exploit it right by calling the Democrats, you know, the 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 anti-Semitic party. He really tried to play that up, right? He tried to really drive a wedge between supporters of Israel and the Democratic Party, and I think I think Republicans have gained um, Jewish uh, voters in the past several years, uh, and I, I guess a lot of it is because of what Trump did. Trump moved the embassy, uh, and uh, and uh, did some other things, and you know gave his blessing to the uh, to the settlements, and then he started these uh, Abraham Accords. Which are a way, number one, to make a united front against Iran, but also to cut out the Palestinians. I mean, they get lost. They get lost. They get shoved aside. And now, now we have Israel making deals with, you know, Gulf states and uh, Morocco, and uh, they wanted one with uh, Saudi Arabia. Although maybe we'll talk about this in a bit. Uh, the chances of that are now not good since China has arranged for uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia to reestablish uh, diplomatic relations. But the Abraham Accords, I think, was just a plot to cut out the Palestinians and also put the screws to Iran. Uh, and so uh, uh, Americans who are, you know, sort of Israeli first Americans, uh, I'm sure have, uh, if they haven't already gone over to the Republican Party, probably thinking very hard about it because there are, there are divisions within the Democrats. Uh, Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's how it looks to me. Yeah, I feel like I feel like um in some sense like the Israel uh, Netanyahu probably his the, the relationship between him and Trump and him and Kushner and all that. I think it it's definitely going to have some sort of backlash um or that backlash is definitely playing out. What what's interesting is that he's now accusing Joe Biden, there, there's there are Israelis and, and real hardcore Zionists who are conf, uh, accusing Joe Biden of trying to pull off a color revolution in Israel. <laughs> huh, no, that one I haven't heard. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm a little, I'd be a little bit doubtful about that. No, he, he's not going to invite Netanyahu to the White House. I know, I know that much. Those are what's been going on. That's the judicial thing, which I think is a big distraction, too, from the Palestinian issue. But, uh, and it, in fact, he, yeah, he criticized Netanyahu for his, his uh, judicial proposal to change the, 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 the Supreme Court the judiciary. And, uh, which is which I, I was a little bit surprised at because uh, you know you can argue that it's you know it, it certainly is an internal issue for Israel. So why is Biden you know speaking out um, about that? Uh, I'd rather he spend his time if he's going to talk about it, talk about the Palestinians, not about the the court in in Israel. Sure, and I, I was just going to say you know we we just covered this topic in our last episode. And uh, I, I largely agree with you, Sheldon, that that this uh, judicial change is is a bit of a distraction away from, you know, uh, the, the, the issue with with Palestinians. But uh, at the same time, this this these proposed changes do have some impacts uh, or could have some impacts on uh, on the Palestinian situation as a whole. So, you know, I'm wondering, you know, to what extent is this a distraction, in your opinion, and and. And if it isn't a distraction, like to what extent does it impact uh, the situation on the ground? Yeah, I didn't mean so much that it was intended as a distraction by Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a stronger motive for him is probably his own legal problems. <laughs> so uh, it may, yep. not have, may not be intended <laughs> as a distraction. It, it does matter. Yeah, by that I didn't mean to say it didn't matter. The Supreme Court over the years in, in Israel has 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 come up with some surprisingly uh, independent rulings that were contrary to what the, uh, you know, the ruling party in the Knesset uh, wanted, most, mostly regarding uh, uh, settlements. Um, now, of course, the Knesset comes in and then uh, ex post facto legalizes illegal settlements. They've been doing that. More often than not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, w- it will matter in the future if, uh, if the Knesset can override any decision by the Supreme Court by a majority uh, by majority rule, uh, and so uh, yeah, yeah, it it, it does matter. It, ma- it does matter to the Palestinians. I, I didn't mean to say that. Uh, for it's sure, a co- it's a no consequence. Yeah, I, I think I think where, where it's a distraction for me is that you know we actually looked into the bill and we tried to dig up as many uh, instances of of how the Supreme Court might have stepped in and, and gone against what the Knesset or or the executive branch in Israel might have wanted. Uh, and in almost every case that we pulled up, the the judicial branch isn't hard blocking initiatives by the Knesset or the executive branch. They're more just suggesting like, hey, what you want to do is illegal. Either change the law so that it is illegal, so it is legal, or do it another way so that it can comport with whatever you know legal framework we already have to go on. So it, there was this one example that we brought up in the last episode where. You know, uh, a commander in the West Bank decided to put up a, a, a security fence, he called it, right? And it cut straight through, you know, a Palestinian territory and kind of a- alienated some members of the community away from the rest of their own community, obviously made it very impossible for them to move freely between, you know, their own community uh, for essential things. Now, this is one of those instances where the, the Supreme Court jumps in and says, hey, you can't do that. That's, you know, the, the, the punishment here you know, for this, quote, security uh, is disproportionate to, you know, the, the gains that you get from the security measure. Find another way to 
to, to either find another way to, to get the, the fence around or change the law. They ended up settling, the commanders and, and, and folks like that, settling with, with putting a new you know, fence line. And of course, it still alienated some, just not all, of the members of that, of that community. So where I see this as a distraction, uh, the judicial question, isn't necessarily that the, the implications of this change won't make a difference for Palestinians, but rather that the courts typically side with whatever the laws are, and the Knesset and the executive branch have a lot of kind of uh, leeway to, to change or amend or, or you know, find loopholes around all of these things. All the judiciary branch is doing, in my opinion, is making it so that it's not so blatantly illegal or blatantly inhumane when they make stupid decisions. I see. So, so uh, are you saying, I mean, I'm not an expert on the court there. Uh, I mean, the court here, the Supreme Court, can strike down a law. So uh, you're saying the Supreme Court, that's not what the Supreme Court in Israel has done. It has it uh, temporarily at least blocked an action by the government saying that violates the law. Correct, right? They're, they're more kind of enforcement there. Now, again, I'm not a scholar of, of you know, con- of the, our constitution, let alone Israeli's non-existent constitution, right? But as I've understood it, doing the research for this, what they're doing is they, they're saying, hey, we've got these founding set of documents, you know, for our laws. We also have historic precedent. And what they'll do is they'll weigh in on whether decisions made by the Knesset or the um, executive branch uh, violate any of those laws, existing laws or precedents, right? And in most cases, they're not saying hard lock, you can never do this anymore. Again, once again, they're just saying either change the law, like codify it into a law so that you can do this, or find some other way to do it that's less, you know, less illegal. <laughs> One big difference over there is they can't declare something unconstitutional. There's no constitution. Precisely. It was, it was <laughs> promised. It was promised by the founders of that state. In the declaration in their declaration of independence but they never got around to it just like they never declared what their borders are i don't think that was an accident an oversight they didn't Agreed. want to declare what they didn't want to declare their borders they wanted them because they expected to expand them in the future so why Agreed. lock yourself in so uh they can't declare yeah laws unconstitutional so there's a big difference uh, one other difference which might bear on this is there's no separate executive branch of course it's a parliamentary system Correct. Uh, I think they once tried that a few years ago, but they gave it up. So Netanyahu, you know, didn't run for prime minister. He was the head of his party, and he and everybody knew that his party got uh, got enough votes and could put together a coalition. Or if it won outright, you know, he'd be the prime minister. But he's a member of parliament, so it's not like uh, our president is not a member of the Congress. Uh, it's more like England. Right? Prime minister is a member of. Of the right. I think I think in practice they they don't have a, a, a distinct separation of the executive and the uh, uh, um, legislative branches, but there can uh, be instances where the executive, quote unquote, uh, side of the Knesset goes to blows with or is or is contrary to what the what the Knesset at large uh, is wanting, which is where they get votes of no confidence, and that's possibly big reason behind why they had five votes in. Five elections in four years, uh, because they couldn't agree. <laughs> yes, and they, they have a very they have a shaky coalition, which may not last very long over this judicial uh, proposal by Netanyahu. Because uh, he, first of all, he's got a lot of people who don't like it. They, we've seen him in the streets, uh, seen plenty of the footage of huge numbers for that population uh, in the streets of uh, of Jerusalem and other other cities. Uh, 
and he's, he's delayed it because they're taking a break now for Passover and I guess to come back at the end of uh, April. But the hardliners in the coalition will be mad if he uh, tries to make a compromise that they don't like. So he's got people on both sides who, you know, are ready to oppose him. That coalition could fall apart at the end of April. It's a very narrow margin. Yeah. Or if he says, uh, I don't want the coalition to fall apart, I'm not compromising, then he's got people back in the streets again, and he's got maybe a general strike, which he almost had. It was only the fact that he delayed the, uh, his proposal that the, the, the unions uh, said, okay, we won't, we won't strike now. Uh, but that would bring the country to a standstill, and, you know, it's, it'd be... Well, that delay, I think, expires at the end of this month, so they don't have a whole lot of time to sort it out. Right. Yeah, I think he's after he, he tried to buy some time by getting to the end of the month. Yeah. But that's the thing. What do you do when, the, well, when that time runs out? Well, well, here's something that's interesting. So I guess one of the concessions that they made to uh, Itamar Bingavir is that they're going to have their own National Guard. Which yes. I, found that, I find that striking. And he's but, the Minister of National Security, isn't that, is that his title? Yeah, that's his. That's his title. Getting like a private militia or something. To I me, that I'm, sounds kind of like an Azov battalion type thing. Like <laughs> what? Ominous. It, it it sounds like it sounds like a like a like a paramilitary group that's really just meant to to intimidate people. And I guess what's the purpose of it? Just to, to beat up on Palestinians more than they already are beat up by the IDF. Like I'm having. I'm trying to think of what they would be doing. Some of the reasoning was on, um, I was reading this New York times article today and it was, um, you know, they're saying they need it for like theft issues because there's a lot of Palestinian theft. Uh, It sounds like, you know, people finding reasons to, you know, hunt black people in the 1920s in Mississippi. Like it's kind of, it's sounds pretty strange. Well, you know, Gavir, I mean, I don't know his own uh, history, but I'm sure he was not fond of the Oslo Accords, which uh, contracted out security to the Palestinian Authority, to a Palestinian elite, right, in the West in the West Bank. In other words, it said, you guys do the dirty work so we don't have to. And they paid them. They paid them royally. First it was Arafat, then Arafat died. So we got a boss and, 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 a, and a, an elite group of uh, you know, uh, relatively speaking, of the Palestinians who rule it over the over who rule it over the rest of the Palestinians, and it, and Israel, you know, under the accords, uh, says, you know, they get money from the Israeli government to do this sort of thing. He probably doesn't like that at all. I mean, uh, that was not popular, I'm sure, with the, uh, the Likud types and the, and the people further right than that. And so maybe he wants to. Uh, not leave everything to the Palestinian enforcers and do some some of his own enforcing. Maybe that's what's what he has in mind. Well, on that, I think a lot of people would agree because I don't think the Palestinians necessarily like the fact that they're getting that their own governments are getting money to enforce these types of laws. Um, probably getting very frustrated with that by this juncture. Well, isn't Abbas uh, in? Uh... I don't know what is he in like the twelfth year of his four year term or something like that. It was, there hasn't been elect. It was supposed to be elections a long time ago, and there haven't been elections. Yeah, right. there's a lot of corruption. There's been a lot of criticism by Palestinians of the Palestinian Authority. They're living, you know, relatively well. The the, the uh, uh, you know that uh, that elite uh, who who have now been licensed by the 
by the uh, Israeli authorities to to do the enforcing. Uh, now that's not throughout the whole West Bank, right? That's just in what uh, uh, part A, uh, section A. I forget which one. It's not. It's not even through. I think most of the uh, most of the West Bank, but the air, certain designated areas. Yeah, the Palestinians are are supposed to be taking care of their own security, overseen, of course, by the Israelis anyway. So uh, the Israelis don't like what they're doing. They can always step in. And then have, we haven't even talked about it. Well, we talked a little bit about Gaza. Gaza's even worse shape. Right. It's an open air, it's an open air prison. That's what they call and it. Nothing mm-hmm. and no one gets in or out without governments, without the Israeli government's uh, permission, and not much does get in and out. Uh, almost 2 million people crammed into there, uh, most of them under 18. A young population. Mm-hmm. Uh, water, I understand, is, uh, is not drinkable. I mean, it's horrible. And, um, and then they get angry, you know, the Israelis get angry and use a way disproportionate force when some rockets are fired. And look, I don't like the idea of rockets being fired into civilian areas, but uh, you, you can, it's not too mysterious why that's happening. Mm hmm. From you know, militants are going to rise to the top when you put them in a situation. When you put a people in a situation like that, and they have no hope of getting out, and what do you think is going to happen? So right. I blame Israel. Ultimately, it's still Israel is Israel's fault. Well, I think uh, in your in one of your uh, last writings in, in the uh, uh, on antiwar.com, uh, you quoted Jamal Huile, uh, and, and I'll read this back for folks who haven't read it yet. Uh, said any person who wants to know the truth has to ask is the re- uh is the resistance a result or a cause the cause is the presence of the occupation the cause is the existence of the refugee camp and the displacement of the palestinian people and the persistence of the refugee issue the cause is the presence of an occupation of our lands resistance isn't the cause resistance is the result which i think is pretty striking uh, uh a pretty good quote and I'm reminded of an um, of another article I, I read, an opinion um, in Al Jazeera uh, of of a Palestinian journalist here, uh, who made some comparisons uh, to the situation that's going on in, in Ukraine, and and uh, basically said that that uh, Palestinians have been gaslit by the international community for the last say 70 years. Uh, you know, here we have decades long you know struggle, and and there's for certain uh, uh, cause, you know, for, for issues on, on, on both sides, but clearly stacked in one, in one favor. However, when you take a look at the situation in Ukraine, almost overnight, you know, the entire community, the, the world community, for the most part, backs up, you know, the Ukrainians' right to defend themselves from an invading force, uh, much the chagrin of, of a lot of the Palestinians in this in this case because they've been doing just that and they're labeled as terrorists. So I guess, you know, what what was your thought process kind of including that that kind of a, a quote in your in your article and like how is that relevant to the to the discussion today? Well that quote comes from a video that uh, the great outfit Mondo Weiss uh, produced uh, that was uh, actually put together by uh, Yumna Patel, and so I was quote she and she did interviews with uh, uh, people in Janine, which had been attacked by the IDF had gone in there a few a few weeks ago or early March, early March, I guess early March or late February, uh, and uh, and every once in a while, you know, Janine, which is a big refugee camp, 
in the West Bank is uh, basically invaded by the uh, the uh, Israeli military uh, because there's a uh, there's been a militant group ri- uh, rising, which has uh, you know has transcended the various sects. You know, so it's a non-sectarian Palestinian resistance of uh, younger people who are, uh, you know, not not taking it uh, not taking it any longer, and so uh, this has given the government, uh, you know, more opportunity and an excuse. But look, the Palestinians' misfortune is that the they were run off their land by uh, by Israel, and uh, the Ukrainians' fortune, good fortune. I'm being ironic here, mm-hmm. uh, is that the, they were invaded by Russia. So, right. you know, in America and a lot of places, Russia is a bad, bad guy and Israel is a good guy. So if you have to pick your, uh, you have to pick who's coming after you, you know, pick Russia, don't pick Israel. Now, all things are changing. Like as we, as we said, there are cracks, cracks in the wall. But I mean, post-World War II, I mean, given the given the Nazis and given what, what uh, the Jews in, the, in Europe had suffered, right. uh, I just think a lot of people were not going to apply normal moral principles to that situation, and and they and I think the Zionists got a pass, and they've had gotten a pass for a very long time. They've over the years invoked the Holocaust whenever uh, there was criticism, or they or anti-Semitism whenever there was criticism, and that has shut up a lot of people. That's mm-hmm. not working in the way it used to work. Thank goodness. Uh, they shouldn't be immune from criticism on the basis of what the Nazis did. Uh, the Palestinians were not Germans. They were not in Germany. And, uh, you know, they didn't. Why were the Israel, the uh, European Jews given uh, given Palestine? Why weren't they given a piece of Germany? Or, you know, tell them the, they wanted to come to the United States. Why weren't they brought to the United States? Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why did the European guilt? And, uh, and and Gentile guilt uh, get loaded onto the Palestinians, which is mm-hmm. what happened. And then, so any criticism is, uh, you know, how dare you uh, criticize what the, what the uh, Jewish Zionists do? Uh, don't you know For what sure. they've suffered? Well, that's not that's not an answer. That's not a moral answer. And that's you know, at least according to some schools of Judaism, that's not even a Jewish answer. You know, there's a lot of strains in Judaism, mm-hmm. but. Some of the prophetic tradition would say, "No, you don't. Uh, you know, the abuse, the abuse should become become the new abuser." Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of the people I think would would disagree with you on this point would would call attention to, uh, you know, the overt uh, uh, cases of racism and, and violence that were committed against not necessarily just Jews in in antiquity, but you know, Israelis in Israel since you know nineteen forty eight. Eight or so, whenever that was established, right? So they they call upon those two intifadas as as uh, hyper, you know, uh, examples of of you know uh, their demise. But you know, I think at a certain juncture, you have to start thinking when is enough enough um, in terms of like the the repercussions for that. I, I like to, uh, to to modify an aphorism by the turn of the century. Jewish journalist in Austria who was anti-Zionist, Carl uh, Krauss, uh, and he, he didn't say this, but I'm saying it. I'm just taking the form of an aphorism. You can tell you can tell an anti-Semite you can tell an anti-Semite by how agitated he gets when a Jewish person runs him off his land. And, and uh, you know, it's a little crass. The idea the idea saying. that the Palestinians <laughs> are anti-Semitic, yeah, is is ridiculous. I mean, because 
because of, of what 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 was done to them. They were run off land. They were there were massacres. They were uh, you know even where there were land sales, a lot of those sales were from absentee feudal landlords who you know the Turk the Turkish authorities earlier had given the land to, but people mm-hmm. had worked that land. Not the non-owners worked that land for many many generations. They they were the real Lockean owners. I mean, I'm invoking John Locke here as a good libertarian. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who mixed their labor with it. They were just kicked off though because that was supposed to be reserved. That was that was holy land, right? That was redeemed when the Zionists bought it, and that meant it was reserved for uh, Jewish labor. So they, in many cases, kicked off the the, the uh, Palestinians whose families had lived there and worked there for many generations, a thousand years and more. And uh, of course, there was animosity about that. Why why wouldn't there have been? Well, yeah, of course, and. Anybody should ask themselves, well, what if that was happening to me? What would I be doing? Do you know, um, do you know the journalists Max Blumenthal and um, Dan Cohen? They did. They have a documentary on Gaza, and basically they're interviewing people on the streets, and they're saying, hey, like, you know, what's the problem here? And they sound like they're from, you know, Texas, really. They're like, well, it's, the problem is, is they took us off, you know, they kicked us off our land. We want our land back. And it's just person after person. There's not one person in that in that uh, documentary who's like, "Well, it's the Jews." Um, there's some international. There's nothing. There's nothing of that sort. It's very. It's very obvious the reasons why they are upset. And it's just it, another thing I find just really interesting. And maybe you could kind of spread some more light because you know I, I know you're more knowledgeable on this subject than I am. Um, I think in, in my email to you, I've mentioned that I'm I, I've read uh, I'm I'm a Shlomo fan, uh, Shlomo Sand fan, uh, no pun intended. Or I'm, like I I love his book. His books are great. Just just uh, any book on nationalism. His first chapter just on on the formation of states is is is, is brilliant. But it it's you know goes through the the formation of you know the early Zionist movement and and, and how the state really begun. Um, it doesn't get in too much into the modern context, but like you know really covered Theodore Herschel and what his ideas were and you know what you know how that all became a state. Um, what he really says in, in one of the big points of this book is that there's really it's not likely that the Jews that came from Europe that colonized Palestine were had these direct lineage to the Semitic population over there. And that 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 the Romans that that story about, you know, the the Roman exodus where Jews were spread spread off, you know, they were you know, the story goes that that the, that the Jews rebelled, the Romans said, "Okay, enough's enough." And then they destroyed the temple and then they they spread them out all across the world so they can never form a state. Um well, I, I I guess I guess he had said in that book that even you know Jewish historians or Jewish scholars say, well, you know, we we never actually really said that happened. That's that's more of a that's something that came on a, l- a little bit later. So um, it's just tr- tracing your lineage back to uh, two thousand years ago is just you know how do you do that? And, ben, and like I said, in that Ben-Gurion book from 1918, which he co-wrote with the second, the man who went on to become the second president of Israel, uh, uh, Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, who actually uh, had some expertise in this area. Ben-Gurion uh, didn't, but they co-wrote this book. 
they conceded your point by by saying that the Palestinians, the people who are there in Palestine right now, were descendants from the ancient Israelites. So that would imply that the Roman uh, the Romans didn't empty Palestine of uh, of the Israelites, the Judeans, and uh, and send them on their way, giving us the diaspora. Uh, and besides, let's not forget that uh, seven, 60 years later, that was like 70, right? 70 AD, so 70 to 73 AD, um, or uh, I should say a common era, CE. Uh, in, in about 160, between 160 and 163, there was a second rebellion against the Romans led by Bar Kokhba. Well, if it had been emptied of, uh, of the Israelites in 70, how was there a bunch of people to hold them to stage a major revolt led by Bar Kokhba in 160? <laughs> really rapid did they, did they come back? Did they all sneak back in? <laughs> yeah, no. And then yeah. Clock, and so, you know, and I've seen uh, on YouTube, I've seen the sand lecture about this. And he was stunned when he went to the library, when he got to the point where he was going to be writing about the exile, which he believed happened up till then. And he, he went to the, the library in Tel Aviv University. I guess they have a good Jewish library there. He says, where, you know, where's the books on the exile? I you know, figured it'd be like a room or at least a big wall. He couldn't find a single book. So then he goes to talk to the professors of Jewish history. They say, as, and this is how he puts it. He's got a very you know strong Israeli accent. He says, well, it wasn't exactly an exile. And it was like you said, they let people believe that, and the pop historians say that. But the serious historians never quite say it. They never really say it. And he quotes from some of those books where they kind of dance around the, or dance around the issue. So that, of course, leads to, uh, I thought you were going to bring up the, the issue of the Khazar Empire. Oh, yeah, the Khazar. I'm not 100% convinced about that, but I don't know. I found it interesting that, you know, that there's a connection. But I, I have zero clue. I mean, I have, I have absolutely zero clue if there's a connection between, if, you know, the... But here's the, here's the thing. Look, it's an interesting academic subject. But I agree with something uh, Ilan Pape said about that, who's, who's, who's very good, of course, in all this. And he's friends with Sand. But he's not really very interested in this question of, uh, of the Khazars. Because here's the thing. If let's say the Khazar story turns out to be a fabrication, it's not a fabrication. They, they did convert. I mean, that's in the that's in the mainstream, older mainstream Jewish histories written by you know Jewish historians. Oh, cool. So that, that's not the issue. But but, but you don't. It, it is not the case that if there are no Khazars and and that the all the European Jews did come from ultimately from Palestine, that that would validate the claim being made in. You know, for the, by the Zionist movement beginning in the late 19th century, because like you said, you can't say my relatives lived here 2000 years ago. I'm back. So clear out. You can't do that. Right. It's a distraction. Yeah. It's a distraction from the. You can do it all over the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, every place can do that. So should we do that or is it, do Jews only get special treatment? To get to do that? You can't do that. So yeah. it doesn't, in a way for, for Israel, it doesn't matter. The cause of story doesn't matter. Uh, they, they Zionists take that feel that uh, is a threatening story, and they even call it anti-Semitic. It's funny; it's all it's in standard Jewish histories and that this uh, this big kingdom, which dominated a lot of places, Kiev, Crimea, I mean, places in the news today, were once part of this uh, uh, Khazarian uh, empire between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea from about the eighth, uh, you know, eighth century, and, and, and the king and the population converted to Judaism 
in the eighth century, around 740, this is common era, not before, not before the common era, in the common era, uh, and then got finally got wiped out by the by well, they got really beaten by the Rus, the Russians, future Russians, and then the Mongols drove the population westward. That's the story. I'm reading Arthur Kessler's book, the great Arthur Kessler, who's no who's no slouch. He wrote a very seriously researched book in the 70s, uh, which I'm, I'm now reading. Now, I'm not saying nothing's been learned since then, but Sand seems to put a lot of stock in that book, too. So maybe nothing very significant has been learned. But anyway, it doesn't have a bearing. And even Kessler says this at the end of the book, because I skipped ahead to the end, it doesn't bear on the present-day Israel, because it wouldn't matter one way or the other. That land claim is still wrong, whether there are Khazars or not Khazars. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. It's it's uh it's it's a moot point because you're still like even if there was a direct connection from two thousand years ago, it still doesn't give you the right to that land. Um, you know, if my great great you know my my uh, grandparents were um, from Kiev and they were forcibly removed from uh, Kiev by the Bolshevik uh, during the Russian Revolution. And what what, what do I do? Go back to Kiev and start asking for whatever tenant they built over their house and say, hey, that's mine. <laughs> like, what? Well, I, I look, uh, I may, maybe I'm Khazar, so I should go back to Khazar and figure out what house my ancestors lived in and kick them out. Yeah, it's, it's just a logic that just, just keeps on going. So I know we're coming up on an hour, and I really just want to ask you another another question because you don't mind staying on for a couple more minutes, do you? Sure. So I just want to get your your input on really – I think you may disagree with me on this. I'm not sure. So I kind of feel that the Palestinian movement right now, at least the resistance movement, is actually very low right now. The morale is low and there's really not very much momentum behind it at all. And I think the reason why that's the case is because of, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why, but one of the reasons is that there's been so much sacrifice on the Palestinian side and it really hasn't been any reward um, and then all those other kind of things in the background of, of uh, like the PLO, uh, when, you know, it became kind of a world issue, it's not the same geopolitical climate where you don't have the same type of Arab nationalism going on in the background. Um, you don't, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the 
the pan Arabs, I kind of feel like the Palestinian movement to, to some degree was kind of an extension of the pan Arab movement um, that played out in, in Egypt and in Syria. Um, and, and that's where a lot of the sympathy kind of went and was directed there. Um, I think those, a lot of those factors are gone. And then another thing is that, you know, I think when you look at like, um, like the reports, I don't look at this daily or not, but something like a, a, a some Palestinian kid a day will probably get killed. I think at this point there's about 90 deaths in the occupied territory. Um, when you compare that to other crises, uh, especially since 2003, since the, the Iraq war, I mean, there's, there's so many other catastrophic global hotspots where there's horrible massacres going on ranging from, you know, I guess in the two, early 2000s in Iraq and Syria and Yemen, you know, and Yemen there's, there's, well, not, maybe not now, but up until maybe about six months ago, there was a hundred people being killed a day there at the very least. And now of course, Ukraine, um, where there's, you know, we don't know the casualty numbers, but it's pr- probably in the hundreds of days, uh, military casualties at the very least that there's so many other global, uh, catastrophes going on right now that the Palestinian movement has, um, almost retreated to being kind of a slogan for like young kind of hip leftist leftist who kind of add that as another, uh, bumper sticker, uh, it, Free I just don't see that much. I <laughs> yeah. don't see that much momentum around it uh, right now, and I don't know. Maybe to some way that could be to the benefit because now it's just like a total. When you look at it now, from from or at least how I look at it now, it's just like a total domination. Uh, it's, it's just total domination from the Israelis to the Palestinians and um, the Hamas, the, the the lead, you know, resistance uh, party is religious and they're conservative. And they don't relate. They don't have the same um, esteem as like the PLO, kind of a secular Arab nationalist that could relate with, you know, some hardcore socialists in Germany or, or West Germany. You know, they, they can't do that because they're, you know, oh, you're going you're gonna to side with the Israeli, you're going to, uh, with, the, with the radical jihadist? What are you, crazy? Like, it's, <laughs> there's, that, there's that kind of dynamic around it. So I don't know if you agree with that or not. Um, That's just kind of like my general feeling and perspective on on, on where that where the Palestinian movement is going. Um, what what is your perspective on on where um, you know is there a, is there still like a resistance or even an appetite for that? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. Now I'm not the closest observer, right? I'm not watching the day to day stuff. Uh, I don't uh, you know read the either Arabic or uh, Hebrew. And so I'm not, I'm not uh, reading Neither the, do I, by the, way. the press directly there, uh, but I rely on my, you know, Mondo Weiss and other places. Uh, and it looks pretty bleak. Now, according to that Mondo Weiss video, uh, there's something attempted being attempted in Janine, which has gone beyond Janine, according to Yumna Patel, who did that video, uh, this, this non-sectarian resistance. I'm not sure what methods they have planned, but they're they're standing up to the occupation and they're saying it sounds like they're saying there's a these are younger people saying, look, we're going to put our differences aside. You know, I guess the religious, the secular, the, the different approaches and try to have a, a united front. Uh, but I agree with your your kind of bleak overall uh, assessment. Uh, hardly anybody's paying attention to the Palestinians. Uh, of course, uh, Russia, Russia and Ukraine uh, dominate things. Uh, 
the, the Yemen war has kind of uh, faded away. I mean, it's, the ceasefire seems to be holding, and now we have Saudi Arabia and uh, and Iran uh, uh, talking and diplomatically. So that that may be uh, finally going away, uh, and, and nobody is thinking of it. But so people are really interested in Russia and China, and uh, the Palestinians are way down, and that's just going to increase the frustration. And, you know, I certainly don't want to see innocent people killed on any side. So I'm, I'm worried about the frustration just boiling over where people think, well, what can we do? There's nothing to lose. Um, so I share I share your, your belief. That one. That's that's compounded, I think. You know, we were talking a bit um, earlier about how it's kind of a moot point to bring up a 2000 year old, potentially unbroken chain of custody of this of this land and how and how much that doesn't matter but you know i worry uh for the palestinian side of this uh currently because the 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 same or similar logic could eventually be applied to the palestinians i mean one of one of the main issues you know uh surrounding the 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 two state solution or a, or even a one state two party solution would be you know uh the question about the right of return and right now that the palestinian diaspora is much larger outside of palestine than it is inside of palestine many of which are in you know refugee camps in in countries that are let's just say less hospitable than than they should be uh to those refugees and so the expectation there for any resolution at least from a palestinian perspective would be the right of return but you know after how much time do we start to say a similar type of logic. Oh, your grandfather owned this place 70 years ago. That doesn't matter now. My family's been here three generations or something like that. At what point, you know, the longer this drags on, the longer, you know, the harder it is to make the argument that they ought to, they ought to come back. I think that's why a lot of Israelis and including American supporters of Israel uh, think the status quo is just fine with them. They, they want to they want to tough it out because time is they I think they feel time is on their side for what you one of the one reason being what you just said mm-hmm. that it, it the the, the um, you know the claims the Palestinian claims are getting older of course they're not two thousand years old nowhere near it there are people walking around with keys you know Palestinians have keys to homes they were driven out of right and uh, and deeds another thing they have title you know, title deeds. Uh, so, I don't know, that, and, and, and it's a tough question. In just in general, abstracting from the Middle East and, and Palestine, uh, it's a tough question about what what do you do to rectify a past injustice, especially when the perpetrator is no longer on the scene and the victim is no longer on the scene, mm-hmm. but just de- descendants of those those people are. I mean, th- those are not easy questions. Um, violence has to be avoided. And, and because violence, you know, carries its own evils, of course, direct and indirect. And so uh, violence to, to, in the name of undoing some uh, old, uh, old uh, injustice is, um, it seems, is self-defeating. You're just creating new, new. So I, I don't really know. I don't have a solution. I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I would prefer a, uh, you know, a, 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 liber- a libertarian area a stateless libertarian area where no individual rights are, are represented, but who cares what I think, what I want. Right. Nobody is, nobody's asking me. And I wouldn't presume to tell us, to tell people living there on any side, you know, what they ought to do. I mean, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, you should respect individual rights, but as far as 
a specific uh, specific setup. It, it seems presumptuous on my part to say what I think they ought to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm a little bit, uh, yeah, I'm kind of uh, constrained in what, in what I can what I can say about that, just because I don't I don't feel right in giving that kind of advice. I mean, I'm living safely here in uh, you know this, this uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, it's, easy, it's easy for me to say anything, isn't it? I share that sentiment, Sheldon. <laughs> oh well, it is certainly uh, always kind of bleak, a bleak topic. Um, Sheldon, thank you so much for for taking time to speak with us. It has been it has been a pleasure. Of course, we could we could we could talk about this topic for for uh, hours. Um, we would love to speak with you again sometime. Um, I guess before we conclude, just let us let everyone know where they can find all of the great work that you do. Well, I post, uh, first of all, at the uh, Libertarian Institute, where I'm the executive editor. Uh, and uh, But you can also, I also have my own blog called Free Association. It's a, it's a blog spot, uh, Sheldon Free Association, uh, dot blogspot.com. Uh, so my materials are already there, also there. And then uh, I kind of mirror it over at Substack. So you can find me at Substack. Uh, so any of those three places, you're going to essentially see the same, the same things. Wonderful. And your book, too. Everyone, Coming to Palestine, um, again, highly recommended. If you can just keep read one book, let's just say if you're if you want to read or if you want to get started reading about Israel, Palestine, Coming to Palestine is a great book to is, is really a great book. So I could not recommend it. I actually have I think I bought actually like two or three copies at this point because I give I've given it to people. So that's how much I recommend it. Um, thanks everyone for listening to another show, another episode of bro history. Uh, if you can, if you have a moment, please remember to fill out the survey in the show notes, the survey monkey survey. It will take you just a couple of minutes and you have a chance to win $500 in Amazon money. And, um, also rate and review the podcast. That is another way that you can support the show. You can also join us to get exclusive content on Patreon and get access to our Slack account. So, Join us there, support us, um, or just listen continuously. We appreciate it all the same, and we will see you next week. Take care. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.